Welcome to Vacation Bible School. Good to see you uh, out uh, for the first night here. And uh, looking forward to going through the book of Colossians and uh, Philemon as well. And so uh, let's, uh, let's begin with a word of prayer and we'll get started. You should all have a commentary, a blue, a blue commentary, each one of you. Does anybody not have a copy? John? Okay, hang on here. Okay, thank you. We'll wait for you. Anybody else? I think John, John needs one. They're free tonight. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and, and they get cheaper as the week goes along. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, let's go ahead and look to the Lord in a word of prayer. Lord, we do thank you that we can uh, assemble tonight around uh, the Word of God and study the, the book of Colossians, uh, what a tremendous book it is. And, and so, Lord, I pray that uh, we could grow in our understanding as we consider uh, the Word of God together tonight. Thank you for the ministry of the Holy Spirit, the teaching ministry of the Holy Spirit, and help me to explain it clearly and accurately. And again, we thank you for this time together. Pray for all the classes that are ongoing. They'd all be fruitful and profitable. I pray in Christ's name. Amen. All right. Well, uh, Colossians, uh, the human author is the Apostle Paul. And of course, all the uh, scriptures have the common denominator of being inspired by the Holy Spirit, who is the, the one divine author be- behind all the 40 human authors that we have in the scriptures. And uh, it was written somewhere between probably uh, A.D. 60 and, and 62 uh, during Paul's first imprisonment at Rome. And uh, you note up here, uh, the theme is the, the supremacy and the sufficiency of Christ. Uh, Colossians, the supremacy of Christ. But we're really going to hit that out of the park tonight. Paul, Paul hits it out of the park. Uh, the Holy Spirit through Paul hits it out of the park. Tremendous emphasis here. Uh, so note, uh, under purpose of writing, I'll just hit, I'm going to hit certain high spots here. We can't read the whole entire commentary, but we will hit the high spots and, and uh, work our way through it that way. But the purpose in writing, Paul was writing to correct an amalgamation of heresy that was influencing the Colossian church. It was a mixture of things, including Judaistic legalism, an early form of Gnosticism, uh, philosophical mysticism, all of which served to deny the sufficiency of Christ. And so uh, note, um, as we think about uh, where Colossae was on a map, uh, here we are, we come up uh, from uh, Jerusalem, come up to the armpit, Tarsus, Paul's stomping ground area here. Here's Colossae. And so Colossae is in in modern day Turkey, and uh, it was located in Asia Minor, uh, largely Gentile population. And so jump down then on that uh, page number two uh, to, uh, there's two other points there. Let's look at the second point. Uh, Colossians is a companion epistle to Philemon. Uh, the church at Colossae evidently met at the house of Philemon. So uh, just FYI, uh, the reason I've kind of lumped Philemon together with Colossians is that they, they go together and uh, we will see why as, as we get to the book of Philemon. Let's begin. Colossians chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother. Skip that first paragraph, and then it says, Paul identifies himself as an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. The word apostle means sent one. It was used in a general sense, but also a technical sense. When linked with Jesus Christ as it is here, it identifies those men who were personally chosen and commissioned by Christ to be his authoritative representatives. So uh, note, next page, uh, page uh, three, 
Paul did not appoint himself as an apostle. Uh, you, you caught that, right? Where it says there in verse 1, uh, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God. That, that is no small thing. Uh, he did not appoint himself as an apostle. He didn't wake up one day like some of these charismatic teachers and say, you know what, I think I want to be an apostle since it is the most elite office in the church. Uh, no, he was uh, made an apostle uh, by the will of God. This was God's doing. It was not obtained by personal ambition or achievement. By the way, watch out for self-appointed people. They're never God's people. Uh, certainly not as far as the position they're trying to self-appoint themselves to. It's a major problem. Uh, under the note there, the next paragraph, Paul introduces himself as an apostle and Timothy as our brother. Uh, believers are a family, a spiritual family, and uh, we are brothers and sisters in the bond of faith. Verse 2, two of the saints and faithful brethren in Christ who are in Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So notice he addresses them here as saints, to the saints. Uh, saints literally means set apart ones. All believers are referred to as saints in the New Testament. If you're a believer here tonight, you are a saint. Uh, people often want to kind of have a false humility and say, well, well, I'm no saint. Well, thank you for introducing yourself as an unbeliever. Uh, because uh, all believers are saints. Now, we're not self-made people either. Uh, God makes us saints in Christ Jesus. It's, it's God's doing. The blood of Jesus so cleanses us from all sin that we are perfect before God positionally. And so uh, we are saints. You're either a saint or you're an ain't. There's no in between. And uh, so all believers are saints. And we should therefore live accordingly. Uh, skip that next uh, paragraph. Come down the middle of the page here. Not only does Paul call them saints, but also faithful brethren. He is not referring to different categories of people. Both the terms saints and faithful brethren were applied to the Christians at Colossae. The word faithful is consistently applied only to genuine believers in the New Testament. Now, there are degrees of faithfulness, for sure. And uh, some bear, you know, one level of fruit, some another. And, uh, you know, we are in process. But uh, the unbelievers are described as the sons of disobedience. And the believers are, in effect, the, the children of obedience. Not perfect, but we are in process. And, and that defines our, our life. Okay, uh, bottom of the page here, last uh, paragraph. All believers are also in Christ. In Christ denotes our spiritual position. It emphasizes our union with Christ. We are now joined to Christ. We share in his life and in his nature. So uh, we're in Christ. You're either outside of Christ or you're in Christ. And Paul is addressing uh, the saints at Colossae who are in Christ. Uh, top of page four, uh, not the first line there, but the second, uh, the second uh, paragraph there, second line. Uh, Paul then gives his common grace and peace greeting, and yet it is more than a greeting. Uh, we often say it is Paul's prayer wish for God's people, but really it's more than that. Uh, it's really a statement of greeting, but it's also a statement of fact. Uh, grace and peace from, from the Father and Jesus are an affirmation directed to the saints. And notice grace is always first. Uh, out of grace comes all the other graces that are experienced in the, in the Christian life, including peace. Grace is always first. Everything flows out of, out of God's grace. And note I say there, as saints, they had already experienced saving grace. Uh, rather, daily grace is in view. It's God's enablement and empowerment to live for Him. 
And uh, I like this verse. It's a wonderful promise in John 1.16. And of his fullness we have all received. He's talking about believers. And grace uh, for, literally upon, grace upon, upon grace. Literally grace piled upon grace. And uh, that's, uh, we are the beneficiaries of, of grace. As, we're really children of grace. We're trophies of grace. We're saved by grace. We live by grace. We're strengthened by grace. It's all grace. Okay, uh, under that next paragraph, middle of the page here, God's grace is always extended towards his own. Uh, this is what Paul had in view in 2 Timothy 2.1, where he says, be strong in the grace. Uh, and then he, we read in Hebrews, uh, come boldly to the throne of grace, to, uh, for grace in, in time of need. At the end of that paragraph, God's position of extended, extending grace never changes. He is ever making it available. We just need to make sure we avail ourselves of it by walking in the Spirit and looking to Him for all that we need. Uh, jump down under the Romans 5.1 reference under there. It says, for the believer, peace with God is an established reality. Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God. That's the Romans 5.1 reference. So that's, that's an established reality for us as believers. Uh, we forever have peace with God because Jesus has forever made us right with God. However, the greeting Paul is expressing here relates to daily peace. Uh, the peace that, of God that rests upon the lives of his people who are in step with the Spirit. So he's talking about uh, our experience of peace. Uh, not our position, but our experience of peace. And uh, is expressing that as, as uh, God's desire for us. Okay, let's go to the next page, page 5. Top of the page. Again, I note that God's peace is ever being made available to His people. But we must first avail ourselves of it. But we must avail ourselves of it. Uh, we bring our burdens to God in prayer and He gives us His peace. Uh, we walk in the Spirit and the fruit of the Spirit is peace. So God wants us to experience His peace. And we all have things that shake us up. And we kind of lose sight of the peace. Well, we got to... Give it to God. Cast all of our burdens upon Him. He cares for us. Uh, let's jump down uh, to the, towards the middle of the page here. In this hostile world, we are in constant need of God's divine enablement, His grace, and His constant peace to protect our hearts and minds from satanic pressure. Boy, we need it. We need grace. We need His peace. There's all kinds of pressures in this, in this uh, world that is under the... Uh, the control of Satan, ultimately, all is under the sovereignty of God, but it is uh, Satan's system out here as far as the world of unbelievers. All right, Colossians 1.3. We give thanks to God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you. Uh, we, meaning Paul and perhaps Timothy too, are consistently praying for these folks. And in all of their prayers, thanksgiving is prominent. So we'll see how Paul prays for people as we work our way through here. Uh, skip that next uh, paragraph. In the Old Testament, God consistently identified himself as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, or the God of Israel. But now as we move into the New Testament, God has revealed himself in an even greater way, in conjunction with an even greater person, the Lord Jesus Christ. So note, uh, we give thanks to God the Father of, uh, and the Father of who? Of our Lord Jesus Christ. Um, Next paragraph, do you want to know who God is? Look in the Old Testament and find who God revealed himself to be in conjunction with the patriarchs. By the way, what, what is the key thing with the patriarchs? Abraham, namely, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We find that all the time in the Old Testament. What's key with those guys? Do you know what, what, what's foundational, what's key with, with those patriarchs? 
What's the key word that kind of we associate with them that the rest of the scriptures build on, the rest of Revelation or redemptive history builds on? Covenant. Covenant. A for the day. That's right. They are the covenant guys. God gives special covenant promises to, and the rest of redemptive history builds on that. Well, when you think about the ultimate uh, covenant reality, the, the person with the ultimate covenant reality, who would that be? Huh? Jesus. Yes. <laughs> the Lord Jesus Christ, right? And he uh, instituted a new covenant by going to the cross. Uh, and we celebrate that every time we have communion. We're, re- we're remembering uh, a new covenant was established on the greatest person that has ever lived, the Lord Jesus Christ. So so he's not just identifying with these these covenant people back in the Old Testament, but with the ultimate expression uh, of God's covenant person, the Lord Jesus Christ. So uh, look in the New Testament, you'll find the fullest, the final and fullest revelation of God in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, uh, top of page six, uh, Colossians 1.4, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and your love for all the saints. Paul's heart was filled with gratitude to God for their faith and for their conversion to Christ. It's a worthy thing just to thank God for his people and for what he has done in their lives. And we all come with all kinds of, you know, problems, all kinds of baggage. Yeah, frankly, it's not always that pretty. But praise the Lord for his work in our lives, making us who we are and and who we are yet to be. Uh, Thank God for every one of, of God's children. Uh, middle of the page here, just above the Galatians uh, 5, 6 uh, reference there. Although relationship with God is established by faith in Christ Jesus, it doesn't stop there. A genuine faith is the root of all Christian life. But love is the fruit. Love is the fruit. If there is no love that follows, it's a sure sign there is no genuine faith either. Uh, Paul was not thankful just for their faith in isolation. No, he was thankful for their faith in Christ uh, and for their love for all the saints. You, did you see that uh, in verse 4 there? When we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and your love for all the saints. That goes together. Uh, Paul is very consistent here, by the way. Galatians 5, 6. In Christ Jesus, neither circumcision, which emphasized by the Jews, nor uncircumcision, you know, practiced by the Gentiles, avails anything. That, that's not what really matters ultimately. But faith working through love. This is the right kind of faith. A saving faith that works through love. If you have a faith that doesn't love, you don't have a New Testament kind of faith. Uh, The fruit, it's the fruit. We're not saved by love, we're saved by faith. But if the faith is real, the fruit is going to be love. And uh, I got other references there. Let's jump down to Colossians 1.5. Because of the hope which is laid up for you in heaven, of which you heard before in the word of truth of the gospel. Bottom of the page here, faith looks back in that it is an established reality based on the finished work of Christ. Uh, Love is a present reality. Hope looks forward. Hope looks forward. So let's go to the next page. Page 7, top of the page here. Hope is a certain expectation that God will bring to pass that which he has promised. Hope relates to the future. In this case, hope anticipates that which is reserved for the believer in heaven. We look forward to being with Christ, who is our blessed hope. So I kind of like to say faith looks backwards, in a sense, to the cross, uh, to what God has promised. And hope, hope is kind of faith in the future as far as what God has promised that is yet to be fulfilled. 
Uh, hope and faith are very closely related. Faith kind of looks back to what God has promised and rests on that. Hope is trusting God to bring to pass what he has, has promised as far as the future. Okay, uh, note there uh, two things concerning the believer's hope regarding heaven. Number one, this hope took root in the hearts of the Colossians when they heard the word of the truth of the gospel. That's when this hope took place in them. That's when it took root in their hearts. Uh, jump down just above the Colossians 1, 6 reference. The idea then is that Paul has heard of their ongoing faith and love, which is motivated by their hope of what lies in store for them in heaven, which all ties back to the truth of the gospel they had previously heard. Well, having stated the truth of the gospel, Paul now builds on that reality. He says in verse 6, which has come to you as it is also in all the world and is bringing forth fruit as it is also among you since the day that you heard and knew the grace of God in truth. Let's unpack that a little bit. At the bottom of the page there, uh, I say, and wherever the gospel goes, it brings, uh, it brings forth fruit. Uh, there are believers wherever the gospel goes. There is always a remnant that believe, and so it was also in Colossae. Top of page 8. Paul says it has been bringing forth fruit among them since the very day they heard it and knew the grace of God in truth. When the gospel is truly received, it impacts the life. It is a transforming thing. So uh, note my next slide here. I want you to note this connection here. We're studying verses 5 and 6 right at the moment. He talks about this hope which is laid up for you in heaven. Looking forward to what God has promised as far as heaven. Of which you heard before in the word of the truth of the gospel. He talks about the truth of the gospel. He says, which is, he's still talking about it, which has come to you as it is also in all the world and is bringing forth fruit as it is also among you since the day that you heard and knew the grace of God in truth. I want you to correspond here. The truth of the gospel is also called the grace of God. Same subject, truth of the gospel, the grace of God. When you heard and knew the grace of God in truth. So one of the ways that Paul describes the gospel is the grace of God. The truth of the gospel, the grace of God. <clears throat> okay, uh, note uh, that what Paul calls the truth of the gospel in verse 5 is called the grace of God, as I've already said. Let's jump down to verse 7. As you also learned uh, from Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf. Skip that next paragraph. Uh, Epaphras uh, was evidently the church planter at Colossae. Paul says it was from him that the Colossians learned the gospel. Paul's referred to him as our, our dear fellow slave. Uh, servant here is literally slave in the Greek. As such, both Paul and Epaphras served the same master, namely the Lord Jesus Christ. Further, Paul says he was a faithful minister. So Paul had a high regard for Epaphras. Let's go to the next page, page 9. There's a lot more commentary here. I wish I had time to share it with you all, but I've broken it up into sections here, uh, which will enable us to get through the entire book, Lord willing. So we're hitting the high points here. But uh, top of page 9, apparently Epaphras was dispatched by Paul to represent him in this area. Paul could not go everywhere, and so he sent out faithful men, such as Epaphras, into areas where he could not reach. And so... He was kind of like Paul's agent, Paul, working for Paul and with Paul as far as targeting uh, this area of Colossae. And he had been very faithful in, in ministering the gospel there. Colossians 1.8, who also declared to us your love in the spirit. 
So again, Paul's rejoicing and thanking God for the report back uh, of their love as a spiritual love that, that is among them. Verse 9, for this reason, we also, since the day we heard it, do not cease to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding. This is a great verse in terms of the will of God. There's so much discussion on the will of God, and a lot of the discussion kind of misses it, I think. And uh, let me tell you what I mean by that. Uh, Skip that next paragraph. Knowing God's will is essential to Christian living. Knowing God's will is not an automatic thing, but rather revealed by God through His Spirit in conjunction with His Word. You want to know the will of God? Know the Word of God. Because that's the will of God. The word, of, the word of God reveals the will of God. Uh, it's not some mystical, you know, subjective thing. Uh, not that God doesn't lead us. In, he does. He shepherds us. But as far as really knowing the will of God, we know it through the word of God. Uh, skip that next uh, paragraph. Note the word knowledge here. Did you catch that? He's praying that they would be filled with the knowledge of his will. Uh, so note the word knowledge It's one of the key words in the book. Knowledge is not to be confused with mysticism, experience, or feelings. Knowledge is related to the objective truth of the Word of God that one can know. So he's praying that they be filled with the knowledge uh, of his will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding. Uh, Bottom of the page here. Do uh, Do you know what the will of God is? It is made clear in the Bible. It is the word rightly divided and applied to life. A huge portion of the error and false teaching we have in the church today is based on the fact that people no longer go by the word. They go by experience. They go by what feels right to them. The way we know God's will is through his word. This is part of the concern at Colossae. People were bringing in philosophies in addition to the word. They were saying, you need more than the Bible. You also need philosophy, etc. That's a problem. Top of page 10. The emphasis on knowledge here is very strong. It drives this whole entire section. It is where Paul starts in his prayer. Everything in the Christian life builds on this. And then uh, let's come down the middle of the page uh, in uh, highlighted there. Wisdom and understanding are distinct, but close in meaning. Wisdom is the godly application of knowledge. It is the proper application of God's truth to Christian living. Understanding is discernment. Uh, It is clear comprehension of biblical truth. Paul uses these two complementary words to make a full orb statement. His prayer then is that they would be discerning, understanding, And making proper application, wisdom, of God's truth in regard to the will of God. Note the word spiritual connects uh, wisdom and understanding. Spiritual denotes that which is of the Holy Spirit. Next uh, paragraph. Also note the breadth of Paul's prayer. He is praying that they would be filled with the knowledge of his will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding. Paul is praying for a very deep level of understanding where there is no lack in their spiritual lives. That's a good prayer for all of us, right? We're coming together. You could look at it this way. We're coming together tonight to further learn about the will of God. We're learning about the will of God in our study tonight. And uh, the prayer is that we would know deeply what is his will. And that impacts our life in in every way. Colossians 1.10. That you may walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing Him, being fruitful in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. So a worthy walk is based on proper understanding. 
walking worthy of the Lord means that we live in a way that is consistent with who we now are as God's children. Next paragraph. Paul then lists four, four participles in his prayer request that modify walking worthy of the Lord. He begins with being fruitful in every good work. We're not saved by good works, but we are saved for good works. Next page. Top of page 11. Paul also prayed that they would be increasing in the knowledge of God. This is the second participle. Increasing is growing. Uh, The way we grow spiritually is by means of the knowledge of God. That's how we grow. Uh, His prayer is that they would be filled with knowledge and yet realizes there is always more to learn. And so Paul prays that they would ever be increasing in the knowledge of God. That's the whole goal in Christian growth, is to, is to know God more deeply. Note the next paragraph. Weak Christians are those who are malnourished in the word. They have major problems in their spiritual life generally. Uh, those uh, having major problems in their life spiritually, <clears throat> spiritual life generally, are people who are not in the word, not being taught, and consequently are not growing. Growing Christians are healthy Christians, and note that growth is inherently connected to the knowledge of God. So I want to really uh, stress that knowing and growing go together. Uh, People that don't spend any time in the Word, they don't get to know God. That's how you know the will of God, and that's how you grow. Verse 11. Strengthened with all might according to His glorious power for all patience and long-suffering with joy. Now, this is a very convicting verse. Uh, Note the third participle here is strengthened with all might according to his glorious power. Uh, All might and according to his glorious power refer to limitless power. Uh, It is not only uh, needed strength, but really more than is necessary. It speaks of the very power of God and God is omnipotent. So God gives us more strength than we need ultimately. Strengthened with all might. He didn't say, well, there's a little bit of power available to you. No, all might. Strengthened with all might. Uh, Note uh, the last part of the phrase literally reads, according to the power of his glory. The glory of God often refers to the revealed splendor of God's divine perfections. As such, it is the expression of his attributes, such as power, grace, truth, mercy, love. We see here that God reveals his power through what he enables the believer to do. And what is that? In our experience, we are actually able to be strengthened with his omnipotent power, which is an expression of his glory. How do you put God's glory on display? Well, we're going to get to that. As one commentator put it, this is the might of God's own manifested nature. Well, next paragraph. And how is this might, this glorious power manifested? Is it shown in working mighty miracles, charismatic movement, charismatic meetings? Is it seen in flowing eloquence? Is it found in intellectual brilliance? Is it manifest in supernatural signs and wonders? No. Rather, it has everything to do with, drum roll, where's Jeremy when I need him? No. (laughs) It It is manifest, it has everything to do with character. 
This power is seen in all patience and long suffering with joy. That's what the verse says. Strengthened with all might according to his glorious power for all patience and long suffering with joy. Patience literally means to remain under. It's the idea of bearing up under pressure. It has to do with endurance under trying circumstances. Long suffering is the idea of self-restraint and not retaliating when wronged. It is tolerant of people when mistreated, it keeps its cool and is even-tempered. I don't know about you, but I don't always put the, the power of God on display in those kind of situations. How about you? I, I got a little room for growth yet in, in my life. I know some of you are a little more advanced, but uh, boy, this is where the power of God really shows itself. When people are really mistreating you and you don't respond in the flesh and want to give them one. You know, as my... Friend Mike Wing would say, do a little wall-to-wall counseling. Uh, you know, you refrain from doing that. Uh, patience. All patience. And long-suffering with joy. You know, you look at the early church. If anybody was mistreated, it was those saints in the early church. I think the American church probably has a lot to learn as far as uh, how do we respond w- without the flesh getting in there in a big way. That's putting uh, his might, his glorious power on display. Uh, bottom of the page here. Do you know what is natural? Difficult pressures come into the life and what does the world do? They blow up. They cuss, swear, blaspheme. Yeah, that's what the world does. And they want us to do it too. Uh, they are anything but patient. But if the believer responds with patient, self-controlled endurance, that is the testimony of God's power operative in their life. When someone mistreats you, the natural thing is to strike back, to retaliate. But if the believer responds with grace and does not retaliate, that is a testimony of God's supernatural power. Especially when they do these things, are you ready for this? With joy. With joy. Okay, uh, enough conviction for the moment. Let's move over to the next page, page 12. And uh, let's look at verse 12, Colossians 1:12. Giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light. Giving thanks to the Father uh, is the fourth participle that modifies walking worthy in verse 10. Paul's prayer is that they would be thankful to God the Father. Giving thanks to the Father. Uh, Note uh, the next line there. Paul goes on to list four reasons why they should be giving thanks as seen in verses 12 through 14. So he kind of has one run-on thought into another run-on thought. But uh, note there in... in, uh, Bold partakers is the idea that each believer has a share in this. Inheritance is literally the portion of the lot. Each child of God will have a definite part in the eternal kingdom treasures. Uh, When God gives you an inheritance, it's going to be a good thing. And uh, I put these verses up here. Uh, They are wonderful. I mean, I can't get my head around them. They're so great. Uh, Romans 8.32, He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? And actually, all other things are, are lesser than his own son, right? I mean, in the fact that God gave his son, I mean, if he's given his son for us, everything else is less. <laughs> so it's not hard to believe that he's going to give us everything else since he's already given us his son. Revelation 21, 7, he who overcomes shall inherit some things, all things. And I will be his God and he shall be my son. Uh, how's that for an inheritance? All thanks. Uh, can't get your mind around it. Can't imagine what it's going to be like. Trophies of grace exalted to the place where we are joint heirs with Christ. 
inherit all things. Amazing. Okay, let's go to the next page, page uh, 13 and verse 13. There's a pattern here, see? Uh, page 13, verse 13. Page 14, verse 14. I don't know how long that goes. Probably not more than a page or so here. But anyway, verse 13. He has uh, delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of the Son of His love. God has delivered us from the power of darkness. Uh, thankfulness not only looks forward to our inheritance, what we're going to get, but also looks backward to the reality of deliverance. Delivered means to be rescued. This was a divine rescue. He rescued us from the power of darkness, which is the realm of Satan. And there is definitely power associated with, with darkness. Um, Satan has power, um, much more power than we naturally have. I um, uh, think I missed a line there. there uh, these are the powers of deception and wickedness. Apart from divine intervention, Satan could just hold us forever in bondage. Praise the Lord for God's deliverance. But as believers, we're no longer held in bondage by Satan. Our deliverance is 100% God's doing. He has delivered us. He has delivered us. The only appropriate response is gratitude. But there's more. He not only delivered us, he also conveyed us into the kingdom of the Son of His love. This overlaps with the inheritance already mentioned. The word conveyed means to be transferred. Note uh, the expositor's quote there. This is a word that was used in secular literature in reference to removing a person from one country and settling them as colonists and citizens of another country. So that's the kind of the picture here. We were in Satan's little domain here. God removed us out of Satan's domain and he placed us in the kingdom. That's where he has placed us positionally. Uh, note what I say there. Some have tried to uh, relate this to some kind of a mystery kingdom that believers now partake of. But I don't think that's right. In view is the coming literal messianic kingdom over which Jesus will rule. Positionally, we've already been placed in the kingdom. In like manner, we're already citizens of heaven, although we haven't been there yet. And in like manner, we are even now positionally seated in the heavens with Christ. These realities speak of positional truth, even though in practical reality, we aren't there yet. So people want to say, well, you know, we're in the kingdom. We're not in the kingdom yet. Uh, we're still praying, your kingdom come, your will be done. So note uh, the bottom of the page there. The identity of the kingdom is clear. It is the kingdom of, of the Son of the Father's love. God the Father loves the Son, and so forth. Positionally, this is where we are. Okay, top of page uh, 14. And verse 14. In whom we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins. In whom is a reference back to the Son. The phrase in whom speaks of our, our intimate spiritual union with Christ. And then the next line there. Uh, to redeem is to deliver or set free by paying a price. It is a release based on payment. This term was often used of the deliverance of slaves or prisoners of war that were bought for a price and then released. We were, as it were, in the slave market of sin. And Jesus paid the price for us so that we could go free. This is the idea of being redeemed. We've been set free by a price that was paid. Jesus paid the price to relieve us, uh, to deliver us from the, the slave market of sin. And he put us positionally in the kingdom. Okay, uh, down there, uh, toward, just above the scarlet thread of redemption, 
Jesus' blood sacrifice was the price paid so that we could go free from the penalty of sin. Never forget that salvation is free to us, but someone paid the price so we could go free. And that someone was Jesus. It's a free gift to us, salvation, but somebody had to pay the price for sin. And that somebody was Jesus. And he paid the price 100%. That's what he means. In in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. Bottom of the page here. The reality of our salvation is so rich that often God uses several ways to illustrate it. Even in the same context. The other word uh, used here is forgiveness. Top of page 15. The word forgiveness literally means to send away from. It is then the idea that God has removed our sins from us. We often say to someone who has been wrong, let it go. This is the idea of forgiveness. Under the new covenant, God promises that he will remember our sins no more. He sends them away. He lets them go. Uh, notice, uh, under the, skip the next paragraph. These twin ideas of redemption and forgiveness are perfectly illustrated in reference to the Day of Atonement as recorded in Luke 16. On the Day of Atonement, two goats were used to illustrate salvation. The first goat was slain as a blood sacrifice. The blood was sprinkled by the high priest on the mercy seat. It symbolically covered the past year of sins by Israel. Then another goat was brought before the priest, the, the high priest. The priest would put both hands on the head of the goat and symbolically transfer all the sins of the people onto this goat. But instead of sacrificing this goat, called the scapegoat, it would be led into the wilderness, never to be seen again. It was pictured as taking the sins of the people far away, never to be seen again. Do you see? The goat's sacrifice represents redemption, the price paid for sin. The goat released represents forgiveness, as the sins were taken away, never to be found again. Both of these pictures find their ultimate fulfillment in Jesus Christ, the perfect Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. Lord, we thank you for our time in this first session. I pray now that you bless uh, the refreshments. Thank you for those working in the kitchen. And uh, just bless our fellowship uh, as we uh, partake of the refreshments now. I pray in Christ's name. Amen. All right, we've got a 20-minute break. I'll see you back at 730. Okay, well, very good. Welcome back to the second session here. We are going to pick it up at uh, chapter 1, verse 15, and the destination is verse 23. So that's what we want to cover in this session. Uh, note a couple of paragraphs before 115. Many think that uh, Colossians 1, 15 through 20 may have been based on an early Christian hymn, but we don't know for sure. Uh, this is certainly one of the uh, high points of New Testament theology regarding the person of Christ. At Colossae, some false teaching was infiltrating the church, which served to undermine a proper understanding of who Jesus is. False teachers saw Jesus as something less than the almighty eternal God. Paul, after his opening prayer for the Colossians, now immediately addresses this issue. Immediately, he affirms the supremacy of Christ, and building on that will emphasize the sufficiency of Christ as he goes on in the book. So these two themes really dominate Colossians. The... uh, Supremacy of Christ, the sufficiency of Christ. Verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. The idea of image is perfect likeness. Jesus is the exact representation of God. He is God manifest to us. He expressed God's nature, God's being uh, to humanity. Uh, 
Jesus is God, a very God. He was the visible manifestation of the invisible God. He showed us God. Uh, page 16, come down to the third paragraph. Mankind was made in the image of God. However, Christ is the image of God. Mankind, in a limited way, reflects the reality of God. But Jesus Christ is the incarnation, uh, was the perfect manifestation of God's being. Let's talk about the word firstborn. The cults like to jump on this word. Uh, The word firstborn here has been greatly misunderstood by many cultists and false teachers. The problem is they do not properly interpret this word in the context of what is being said and in the greater context of the whole counsel of God. So uh, note the word firstborn can have two meanings. Number one, it can mean first in time. That's true, it can in terms of existence. But it can also mean first in rank in terms of position. And of course, uh, the whole context here argues for the second meaning, uh, first in rank. Um, Skip that next paragraph. Note, this does not say Christ was firstborn in creation, but firstborn over all creation. This denotes first in rank. Uh, footnote there, uh, there are three first chapters that emphasize the supremacy and deity of Christ, namely John 1, Colossians 1, and Hebrews 1. Next verse, Colossians 1.16, For by him all things were created. So we're talking about Christ here. By him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created through him and for him. Note the uh, three prepositional phrases, by him, through him, and for him. This explains Jesus Christ's relationship to creation. Top of page 17. For by or in him, all things were created means Jesus Christ is the architect or the designer of all things. He was involved in all of it. Uh, Let's jump down uh, to uh, to the footnote there. And this is important for you to note when these people with white shirts knock on your door. Uh, Not that I don't ever wear a white shirt, but anyway, uh, I don't when I'm knocking on doors. Okay, anyway. Uh, Footnote, this is why the Jehovah's Witnesses have gone through this text and added uh, the word other. So that in their false translation called the New World Translation, it now reads, all other things were created by him. Since they hold that Christ himself was created, then he can't be said to have created all things, right? So they change the text, which is most serious. In their errant theology, after Christ was created, then he created all other things. However, the word other is not in the Greek text. This is an example of perverting the text by adding to it. Plain and simple, Christ created all things. No exception. Note the clarification that Paul gives and makes it absolutely clear. Uh, Okay, let's jump down to the middle of the page Uh, there. Jesus created whatever is out there, both visible and invisible. Whatever sort it is, there are physical things we can't see, and there are spiritual and invisible things we can't see. And Jesus made them all. Uh, Paul speaks in terms of thrones, dominions, principalities, or powers. In other texts, those same descriptions are used in regard to the ranks of angels. The Colossians were being taught to improperly exalt angels, They were being taught to think too highly of angels and too lowly of Christ. So it is understandable that Paul makes specific mention of the angelic ranks 
Whatever rank of angel, Christ created them all. That's the point. Okay, let's go to uh, page 18 and uh, third paragraph there. Paul emphasizes all things were created through him and for him. Created here is in the perfect tense, indicating completed action. Nothing new is now being created. Verse 17. And he is before all things, and in him all things consist. Christ was not created in a long line of emanations, as the Gnostic teachers were wanting to claim. Uh, No, he existed before all things. This speaks to the reality of Christ's pre-existence. Jesus Christ is eternal. Note again the exact language. He is before all things. Not he was before all things. Uh, The present tense is, is significant. It speaks to Christ's timeless, eternal existence. Of course, uh, one of the key names for God in the Bible is I am, which speaks to he just is. Uh, He's the eternal God. Uh, Next paragraph, or next uh, sentence there. Uh, The word consists literally means hold together. Not only is Christ the creator of all things, but he is also the sustainer of all things. Colossians 1.18. And he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have the preeminence. The church here is referred metaphorically uh, as, as the body. The body is made up of all born-again believers in Jesus Christ. The universal church, which consists of all true believers in the church age, is in view. Okay, uh, let's go to the next page, page uh, 19. As the head of the body, Christ has authority over it. He directs, controls, leads, guides, and governs the body. Angels serve as ministering spirits for the good of the church, but Christ alone is the head of the church. He's the head of the church. Um, Skip that next paragraph. Note again the phrase, he is. We see it three times in this context. The emphasis is Christ all the way through. He is the image of the invisible God. He is before all things. He is the head of the body. So again, we note the uh, supremacy of Jesus Christ is being emphasized throughout. The emphasis is on who Christ is in relationship to God, to creation, and the church. The idea of Christ being the beginning is set in the context of the church. The idea is that he is the originator of the church. Christ alone is the founder of the church. It is his church. He is the source of it, and he will build it. In the phrase, firstborn from the dead, note the word firstborn, both in time and first in rank, would fit here. Christ was the first person ever to be resurrected with a glorified body. But at the same time, in his resurrection, Christ was exalted as the God-man to the highest position in the universe. As God, he was always in this position, but as the God-man... He went from the position of humility in his earthly ministry to in his resurrection as the God-man being exalted as Lord over all. Everything in the plan of God, including the resurrection of Christ, was orchestrated to the end that Christ has the preeminence. The preeminence is the supreme position. It is the highest place. In all things, Christ is number one. So uh, again, note the emphasis here. Note the fivefold emphasis on all things. All things in all these verses. Verse 16, by him all things were created. 16, all things were created through him and for him. 17, he is before all things. 17, in him all things consist. And 18, in all things he may have the preeminence. So again, tremendous emphasis here being made in relationship to Jesus Christ. Verse 19, 
For it pleased the Father that in him all the fullness should dwell. Please the Father that in him all the fullness should dwell. Uh, come to page 20, second paragraph there. The Greek word translated fullness here is historically significant. The Gnostics, you see, taught that the full range of emanations, and so they believe that God couldn't have really direct contact with this world because of its sinfulness. So there's, there's kind of like you got the, you know, the supreme God here, but then there's emanations. There's all kinds of lower de- deities. And, and finally you have you know, some really kind of low deity that might have a little contact. Well, uh, he is refuting this. The Gnostics taught that the full range of emanations from the top being God to the lowest emanation comprehensively taken together as a collective whole contained the fullness of this consortium, the full measure of what God is supposedly, uh, of what God uh, was supposedly represented. But Paul counters with the fact that in Christ himself all the fullness is represented. You see what he's saying? It's all there in Christ. The idea is that the totality of divine attributes and powers resides in Christ. It's all found in Him. He is totally sufficient. The idea is that all that God is, is found in Christ. It's total heresy to attribute divine honors to some supposed chain of angelic emanations. Uh, Skip the next line there. The word dwell literally means to take up residence permanently and points to the reality of the incarnation when deity came to live in a human body in the person of Jesus Christ. God the Son in his total deity came to live in a human body. Jesus did not just become a man for a little while. He was God living in a human body as a permanent reality. I want to say he is God living in a human body as a permanent reality. This is absolutely essential doctrine. It is inherently a part of the gospel message. Down to verse 20. And by him to reconcile all things to himself, by him, whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made, having made peace through the blood of his cross. So skip that next sentence. The word reconcile means to change or exchange. It denotes a change in relationship from that of enmity to that of friendship. And uh, let's go to the next page. Uh, Note uh, there, there's five key New Testament words that relate to salvation, just kind of in passing. Justification, to be declared righteous. Redemption, to deliver by paying a price, which we've already looked at. Three, forgiveness, to send away. Uh, Four, adoption, placed in privileged position of adult son. And reconciled, that's the word we're talking about now. A change in relationship from enmity to friendship. To reconcile means to remove the barriers that separate uh, making restoration possible. In Jesus, God has removed the sin barrier so we might be in right relationship with God. By Christ, God went about to reconcile all things to himself, whether on earth or in heaven. Some have taken the errant position. This indicates universal salvation. But that is obviously wrong. You know, flip back to the verse there. Notice what it says. By him to reconcile all things to himself by him, whether things on earth or things in heaven. Well, that sounds kind of like universalism, doesn't it? All things? Well, let's talk about this. Um, Skip that next paragraph. uh, Page 21, there in the middle. Not only were the things of earth affected, but also things in heaven. By the way, where did sin originally take place? Heaven. Right? Satan, Satan originally sinned in heaven and was expelled. 
Uh, Satan is now called the prince of the power of the air, <clears throat> and so forth. Next, next paragraph. Christ's sacrifice broke down the barriers and made purification possible. He made it possible for the whole of creation, whether on earth or in heaven, to be restored. So the sense is that everything that can possibly be reconciled in the realm of heaven and earth will be reconciled through Christ. Uh, skip the next paragraph. Note the basis for a right relationship with God was not the birth, baptism, or miracles of Christ, but rather it was through the blood of his cross. We are not reconciled to God on the basis of anything we do, but purely on the basis of what he has done on the cross. We are not reconciled by good works, baptism, sacraments, loving one another, or any other good work that we do. The ground for reconciliation, for being at peace with God, is totally based on the cross work of Jesus Christ. Okay, uh, let's come across the page, page 22, and the middle of the page there, right above the, the verse. Now Paul narrows it down. He starts with the big picture of reconciliation, whereby all things will be restored to harmonious relations with God and are no longer under the futility of sin. But then he moves to directly address personal reconciliation, the personal salvation of God's children. Verse 21, and you, he's talking about believers now, right? And you, who were once alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now he has reconciled. You is very personal. This applies to every one of us who have come to have a right relationship with God through faith in Jesus Christ. We were all once alienated from God. Boy, that's, that, that makes you cringe, doesn't it, just to think about it? We were all in that position, alienated from God. This means we were estranged from God. We were cut off from Him. We were separated from God. We had no relationship with God as His children. Bottom of the page there. The essential realm where this enmity is operative is in the mind. Did you see that? Alienate and enemies in your mind. In your mind by wicked works. The thoughts and attitudes are constantly revolting against God. The disposition of the heart and the choices that are made betray a hateful hostility towards God. Top of page 23. This is where repentance comes in. Repentance means to have a change of mind. We go from cursing the light to humbling ourselves before it. We acknowledge our sin and accept Christ. And of course, it's, it's the goodness of God that leads to repentance. No one ever arrives at this position without the intervention of God and the, and the work of God in a person's heart. None seeks after God on their own. It's all of grace. Middle of the page. Note it well, you who were once, you who once were alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, we once were there, but not anymore. We once were, but not anymore. Now we have been reconciled, and that means we have a whole different disposition. We think differently. A whole different relationship with God. And skip that next paragraph. Note well that it says, He has reconciled. We didn't make this happen. It is Christ's doing. The reconciling work is all His. Note the next phrase, In the body of His flesh through death. What part did we play here? No part. This is all Christ's doing. Verse 22. In the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and blameless and above reproach in his sight. I like this verse. How about you? I like this idea of being presented holy, blameless, and above reproach in his sight. I like the idea there's nothing on me. I'm, I'm completely pure in God's sight. I like that. Uh, as if to drive the point home, Paul emphasizes that the basis of this reconciliation was the body of Christ's flesh through death. 
Uh, let's go to the next page, page 24. Holy, uh, the second uh, paragraph. Holy means set apart for God. God will find us righteous because we, because now we have Christ's righteousness imputed to us. Um, Christ gets all of our sin and we get his righteousness. It's put to our account. 2 Corinthians 5.21. The word blameless means to be without fault or flaw. And then note uh, the next line, the next paragraph. The, the phrase above reproach means to be free from accusation. It means no charge can be held against you. I say, I like this verse. I like this. And you do too if you're a believer. Two changes in relation to reconciliation. Disposition, no longer alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works. You have a different mind. Position, now seen as holy, blameless, and above reproach. Wow. There's a lot in that word reconciliation. Um, a lot of changes. Colossians 1.23 If indeed you continue in the faith, grounded and and steadfast and are not moved away from the hope of the gospel which you heard which was preached to every creature under heaven of which I Paul became a minister in reconciliation God does it all Jesus has done all the saving work but this reconciling work does demand a response not a works response but a response of sincere faith in Christ you see reconciliation involves a change of mind on the part of the offending party. Skip the next paragraph. In order to be reconciled, one must believe the gospel. This is precisely why, uh, that is precisely why Paul says here, if indeed you continue in the faith. Now some have used this verse to say that you can lose your salvation, saying that if you don't continue in the faith, then you are no longer reconciled. But that's not what Paul is saying. The word if could legitimately be translated as since. The sense is that those who have been reconciled will continue in the faith. It's not a condition for salvation, but a result of it. The expectation is that those reconciled will continue on in the faith. Uh, Note William MacDonald, uh, what he has to say. He's got a good uh, summary here. He says, The eternal security of the believer is a blessed truth which is set forth clearly in the pages of the New Testament. However, the Scriptures also teach, as in this verse, that true faith always has the quality of permanence and that one who has really been born of God will go on faithfully to the end. Continuance is a proof of reality. Of course, there's always a danger of backsliding, but a Christian falls only to rise again. He does not forsake the faith. The Spirit of God has seen fit to put many of these so-called if passages in the Word of God in order to challenge all who profess the name of Christ as to the reality of their profession. Or, as I say, as one succinctly put it, continuance is the test of reality. And we see that consistently in the Scriptures. Notice what he says uh, here in the verse... If you continue in the faith, grounded, steadfast, not moved away. Grounded means established, established. The idea is that this person has really come to have the gospel truth as his foundation. Steadfast means settled. This person has a settled resolve in regard to the gospel. Denotes a firm commitment that does not move. And not moved away is is reminiscent of, of Jesus' parable 
in Matthew 7, 24 through 27, regarding the wise man who built upon the rock versus the foolish man who built his house upon the sand. Paul says the same essential thing four ways. He likes to do that to make an emphasis. Continue in, grounded, steadfast, not moved away. If this characterizes your stand on the gospel, that is evidence that you have truly been reconciled to God. However, if a person does not continue in, is not established on, is not settled about, and moves away from the gospel, it just goes to prove they were never truly genuine. We're saved by faith alone, but it must be the right kind of faith. It's a change of mind kind of faith that embraces Christ as Lord and Savior. It's a change of mind kind of faith that has the character of permanence. It is the spirit of what we sing in the words, I have decided to follow Jesus, no turning back, no turning back. The reformers well said, we're saved by faith alone, but the faith that saves does not remain alone. Note the faith here correlates to the hope of the gospel. The word gospel means good news. Hope refers to a certain expectation regarding God's promise. The phrase hope of the gospel extends all the way back to verse 5. Note there in verse 5 that Paul speaks of the, the hope laid up for you in heaven, of which you heard before in the word of the truth of the gospel. The hope of the gospel then brackets this whole section and intersects with the truth of the person of Christ, the work of Christ, and the believer's inheritance in Christ. These are the foundational truths of the gospel that a believer will not abandon. They heard this gospel message. It was preached far and wide through the known Roman world. Many think that Paul purposely uses hyperbole here, preached to every creature under heaven, to stress how widespread and consistent was this gospel message. The same gospel message that changed their lives had an impact far and wide. This constant, unchanging message consistently changes lives. In contrast was the amalgamated message of the Gnostic cultists that varied from place to place. Uh, note that phrase at the top of page 26, <clears throat> of which I, Paul, became a minister. In saying uh, of which I, Paul, became a minister, Paul notes that he himself is one of those impacted by this gospel of which he then became a minister. His whole life was now given over to teaching this gospel. So note uh, what we have here in the context as you look, step back and look at the context. Tremendous emphasis on the person of Christ in verses 15 through 19. The reconciling work of Christ in verses 20 through 22. And then saving faith in the person of the worker. This is the response to this great truth here. The person of Christ and the work of Christ. And the saving faith that responds to this. And I insist on this package as far as the gospel. Uh, you have to underscore who Christ is as well as what he has done. And saving faith embraces both of these realities. That's the context here. It all flows to this saving faith uh, that we've ta just talked about here. A true saving faith that reconciles to God results in, uh, note these three things. A true saving faith results in this. One, a changed mind that is no longer hostile to God, as we have noted. A changed life that brings forth the fruit of righteousness. And a continuing faith in Christ as Lord and Savior. These are the traits uh, related to a true saving faith. Okay, we got three minutes. Any questions? No? You're not used to questions, are you? That's okay. All right. Well, you're going to get out three minutes early then. Let's pray together. 
Lord, again, we do thank you for your word tonight. And uh, Lord, uh, the strong emphasis here in chapter one on the on the supremacy of Jesus Christ and uh, how he is exalted over all. And uh, Lord, as true believers, that is where our faith is. We believe on the Lord Jesus Christ for who he is. We believe in his name, as the Bible says. And then we believe in his his reconciling work. Uh, We could never make ourselves right with you. Jesus Christ has done it all uh, through his blood sacrifice on the cross. And so those two things are wed together in the scriptures. We see here in Colossians 1. Uh, both the person of Jesus Christ, who he is, is exalt, the exalted one over all others. The eternal God, man now. The eternal God who has become a man. Forever in that uh, condition as the God-man. And Lord, then uh, a saving faith embraces him for who he is, for what he's done. And Lord, that, that hope that we have in Jesus Christ uh, is a settled reality for us as believers. Uh, proof of our faith is really we're grounded, steadfast, not moved away. And we thank you that in that position we are holy and blameless and above reproach. Lord, again, we thank you for uh, this uh, night and this study in Colossians. I pray that you would continue to bless as we continue on in the week and work our way through the book here. Pray in Christ's name. Amen.